Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 40th edition of the PR Masters podcast series. I'm Mark Stevens, your host, and I'm also managing partner of the Stevens Group, a leading facilitator of mergers and acquisitions in the PR and digital interactive space. As you know by now, the PR Masters podcast honors living legends in our profession, individuals who have made a mark in the world of public relations. And the individual we have today is no exception. We have a very special guest today. He is Michael Kempner, and Michael is the founder and chief executive officer of MWWPR, one of the nation's largest independent public relations firms. Michael is a nationally recognized authority on reputation management, crisis management, public affairs, business-to-business, consumer marketing, and corporate social responsibility. And he has counseled some of the world's most prominent executives, organizations, and companies. Michael, as I well know, is known for his candor, commitment to community service, and personal attention to client needs. He's an author and a speaker on a variety of public relations management, entrepreneurship, and marketing topics. And as an active member of his community, Michael serves as the chairman of the Manhattan Chamber of Commerce, in addition to a current member of the PR Council Board of Directors. He's also a board member of the New York Coalition for the Homeless, Fulbright Canada Scholarship Board, and a founding board member of Connect One Bank, one of the nation's most successful community banks. He's also very active in progressive politics and issues, and he's played major roles, and I'll be chatting with him about this later, but he's played major roles in the campaigns of President, President Barack Obama, Secretary Hillary Clinton, and currently Joe Biden. So Michael is obviously part of some exciting times, and we'll get into that a little later. So welcome, Michael, and thank you for joining us on PR Masters podcast series. Well, Art, thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege and an honor, and I just want to—I just wanted to say that I hope everybody listening um, is safe and healthy. Uh, and we'll have a peaceful and, again, healthy Thanksgiving. I second that. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks very much. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, MWW. It's been an interesting company, obviously, as you know. uh, In my capacity as uh, somebody who works in mergers and acquisitions, I've obviously followed the history of your firm, um, and it's been a very interesting uh, trajectory. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of MWW and what was your career tra- trajectory before MWW? And as an add-on, what prompted you to start your own firm and how did you reach the heights that you and the firm are today? Well, that's a lot to unpack, Art, so I will try to do it in a succinct fashion. Um, but we didn't have a traditional beginning. I mean, in fact, I had never stepped foot in a public relations firm before I started this agency. Not in the lobby, not in the bathroom, nowhere. (laughs) So I started my career, uh, you know, when I was uh, just a, you know, four or five, six, 10 years old, I oddly had a dream to be in politics, even as a little kid. And so I went to school in Washington to, uh, to accomplish those goals and uh, quickly uh, was able to have a series of fairly significant jobs uh, in government. I was a specialist, even while I was in college at 19, I was a special assistant to the governor of New Jersey, uh, deputy finance director of the Democratic National Committee, ran a campaign for Congress, 
legislative director for a congressman and a variety of other roles while going to school at night. And I had a, a dream and a career path of being um, I, not never running for office, but I loved the parts uh, of politics that were about strategy, um, about uh, public service, uh, finding new and unique ways to help people. Uh, and I did that for a decade. Um, but at some point, uh, it was, you know, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, you don't make much money. And frankly, I couldn't keep a girlfriend because I worked all the time. So I decided it was it was time to change careers. I actually had met um, a young woman who was who I met on the congressional campaign I was running. She lived in New Jersey. Uh, my parents lived in New Jersey. That's where I went to high school. Uh, and I thought it was a good time to go back home. So I left politics, never really left politics because I'm still very actively involved. I left it as my full-time job. And idly, I went to become president of a chocolate company. Now you'll say that, that sounds odd, and it was. But these were liquor-filled chocolates. They were actually illegal in the United States. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever seen those little bottle, chocolate bottles filled with liquor, they were illegal in the United States based on this 1906 Food Purity Act. And so I was hired by the person who owned the chocolate company because I knew how to change laws and change the federal laws. So I changed 30 state laws and I changed the federal law. And I learned how to run a business. You know, I learned how to make payroll and I learned how to get sued and I learned how to get insurance. And I learned all the things that happen day to day in running a business. And part of that, I learned a lot about what, how do you manufacture products? What's the advertising? What's the packaging? What's the marketing? What's the public relations? I dealt with supermarkets. I literally supervised building two factories. Um, and I hired the cook and, you know, made sure the factory line was going. And it was all very exciting for the first couple of years. But then it was just running factories, and that's not me. I'm really a, more of a service guy than I am a, a, a manufacturer. So I took them as a consulting practice, and I decided for, you know, I took the parts I liked, the marketing, the PR, the government affairs, and as a consultant, and I decided I was going to go find a job. Now, I'd, ever look, I'd never looked for a job in my life because every job since high school, I and mean, every job had kind of led to the next one. Uh, but I, uh, so I had worked for this congressman from New Jersey. I had worked from the governor of New Jersey. I had done all this work in New Jersey. And here I was going to look for a job with a consulting contract. Now, I didn't spend any money. I didn't have a family. I didn't have a mortgage. So even the small amount that I had was enough to keep me going. And then all of a sudden, I knew all these people, and they would ask me if I could help them on something. And they would pay me. So I did a lot what I call stuff. You know, I helped people with government. I did a lot of strategic planning. I did a lot of strategic communications. And after six months, I had five, ten clients. I didn't even know what a client was, frankly. And it became clear what I was doing for a living was this thing called public relations or strategic communications in those days. 
And so I said, you know, this can be a business. And I started the company, and that's how it all happened. And then as far as, you know, you asked Al's question about how did we kind of grow so quickly and what was the the secret to our success. The secret to our success goes way back to our founding. And it is really still who we are today. You know, we, we started with an attitude, which later became a philosophy of if it's the right thing to do, do it. If it's not, don't. And it was pretty simple. So we were not bound by any custom or bound by any predisposed way to handle a problem or a opportunity. We didn't know what the rules were, so frankly, we didn't follow them. Uh, so as long as it was legal and ethical, we would do it, and we would find new ways to solve problems because we didn't have any clue how you were supposed to do them. So we just did what made sense. We just did the right thing, and uh, not being not knowing what you not knowing what you don't know. I mean, is a uh, it's a it's a very freeing way to be, and we still operate that way today. You know, don't tell me how you've always done it. Tell me how we should do it. How are we going to not just take a client's money? How are we going to provide real value? So we set out with that to let's do what makes sense. Let's work harder. Let's work smarter. Let's care more. And let's make sure we we win every time. Uh, And that was our philosophy. And so not knowing what we were supposed to do was a huge part of what made us successful. I assume that that you that enabled you to attract some really good employees uh, along the way, uh, because obviously the people you uh, employ are the key to successful client programs. So, tell me what 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 was it like during the first few years? So, was it difficult? Did you think you were going to make it? I mean, did you think you'd reach the size you are today? What was your goal in in obviously taking over the call it the service part of the of the of the business that you had been in uh, and got, getting rid of the factories, but obviously focusing on, on service people, creativity, that kind of thing. Uh, it sounds like you got a lot of early contracts and consulting assignments in New Jersey. Uh, did you have some difficult moments, or was it all fast forward? You know, there's always difficult moments. I mean, when you have nothing to lose, it's actually fun. The you know so to me I never looked at it as risk I was very I was young I was twenty six twenty seven years old so to me if it worked fantastic and if it didn't I'd go get a job because you know so it wasn't as if I felt there was a lot of risk I didn't feel a lot of responsibility it wasn't until we were six months old or a year old where all of a sudden I had something that was worth defending. I had a real business. So it took off very quickly. Um, I took all the money and put it back into hiring people into growing the business. I didn't pay myself for two years. And that was a great luxury. I didn't have the responsibility of a family. I didn't have the responsibility of a mortgage. So I didn't need much to live. So I, so I was able to remember, I didn't come from the business. So I was able to hire really smart people and I learned a lot from them. So for two years, literally didn't pay myself anything, not figuratively. And I was able to put it all back into the business. And I I think that enabled me to grow 
and to prosper. I also found people that were quite good at what they did, that loved the entrepreneurial spirit, that loved the, uh, you know, the we need to win, we need to win for our clients philosophy, uh, which then allowed me to both continue to be a good counselor, but to spend a lot of my time working my contacts and bringing in business. So no, there's always ups and downs, but we were very successful very quickly. And that's when it becomes real. I recall one of the greatest moments in the company's history. We had about, so now you have pressure. Now you have something uh, to worry about. We're about $2 million. And uh, and we're maybe a year and a half old at this point. Uh, so very rapid growth. And, you know, but I was still, you know, in those days, you know, I didn't have any infrastructure. So, you know, clients wouldn't pay their bills and there were all sorts of problems. And again, the clients you could attract were not necessarily the highest, um, uh, had, had the highest financial capabilities. And I do remember sitting in my bed in my New York apartment. I had got married by then uh, and thinking, you know, if a client doesn't pay me, I won't go out of business. And it may have been the first time I slept in two years because up to then, you know, a client wouldn't pay me. How was I going to pay my employees? How was I going to pay my rent? How was I going to do all those kind of things? And there were many sleepless nights when clients didn't pay. Uh, but then, you know, I got to the point where, you know, I now had enough clients. I now had enough. Now I wanted them all to pay me, but, if one of them didn't or one went away, I'd be okay. And it was probably the first night I slept in two years. So, Michael, somewhere along the way, um, and I, rem- I remember that, uh, your firm got acquired, and then subsequently uh, you took it private again. I believe you got acquired by Interpublic Group. Is, is that right? Um, That's correct, yes. Um, and so – Tell me about that scenario. I mean, what was your reason for being acquired? How long had you had your firm by the time you were acquired? What was your reason for doing so at that time? And tell us about the experience. And this is not about bad-mouthing you know, anybody, uh, but obviously you, know, you went through a, a situation where you felt that, hey, I'd rather be back on my own again. You want to take us through that? Because I think that would be very instructive for our listeners. Of course. First off, my experience with IPG was not negative. So there's nothing to bash them about at all. So we were 24 years old. We were one of the largest independents in the country at that point. Um, and, you know, it was an odd time in the economy. I mean, most of your listeners probably don't even know what the dot-com boom was. But there was a time where the economy was on a massive overdrive, um, the internet really had just taken off from an e-commerce and platform basis, um, and Wall Street was investing huge amounts of money in these companies, and the business was um, on fire. Not just my business, the entire industry. But it was also very clear to me that this was not sustainable, that what people were asking you to do for the for the money, for you know, what there, what was going on. This was just not sustainable to me. And at the same time, I had three young children and I believe that it would be in my family's best interest for me to take some of my chips off the table and create real security for my family. So not only was the entire marketplace overheated because of what was happening in the dot-com uh, economy, but 
the value of PR firms were overheated, you know, very uh, high multiples. And so because of our size, I, 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 you know, I actually didn't need to hire an investment banker um, because you, you could buy a lot of revenue for a relatively inexpensive price uh, and you could leap from being number 12 to number six largest overnight. And so every large holding company called us. I didn't, I didn't call anybody. The, you know, every roll up fund, a lot of private equity firms, uh, they all came to see us. And, and I didn't really know if I wanted to sell, but I spent a year or so just becoming a very informed seller. I took every meeting. I listened to what people had to say. Uh, and I became just smart about it. I think that's an important lesson. You know, go educate yourself. And one of the great ways to educate yourself is to actually go through, talk to a lot of people, see what they want to offer you, see what the similarities are, see what the possibilities are. At the end of the day, I thought the best scenario for my team, my clients, and myself uh, was to sell to Interpublic Group. Now, an odd thing happened. I sold to Interpublic Group. And you know, sixty days within sixty days later, the market crashed and the dot com bust happened. And so many of the reasons why IPG bought me was to be a third global brand, Weber, Shanway, Golan, and then it was going to be MWW. Um, the economy burst, and so they could no longer afford to uh, invest in us and create this major global brand. So many of the reasons why they bought us were no longer valid because the economy had changed. And again, it wasn't, I totally understood. It wasn't as if there was any hostility about it, but we stayed there for 10 years and we, and I worked hard and I believe that they had paid me well and it was my obligation to make sure that I had performed for them. And we performed every year and we made the money. Uh, And then, but at some point, you know, my, you know, my earnout was four and a half years, which was relatively long, but it was four and a half years. But I stayed for five and a half more after that. You know, I liked what I did. They treated me fine. I would actually say they treated me well. And uh, it was a great platform to, you know, do you know, my politics, my philanthropy. I loved the people that I worked with. I loved my clients. So I didn't really have any desire to leave. But at the same time, I continued to itch to be an entrepreneur because that's who I was. So really, after nine or 10 years, you know, there was a couple of years of conversation. I was able to buy back the business and almost 10 years to the day. I'd sold it in October of 1999 um, and I bought bought it back on December 31st, um, uh, 2009. So uh, or January 1st. 2010, depending on exactly when it all went through. Uh, and, um, you know, and, you know, very quickly, it was clear that my people and and me personally, not because anything wrong that IPG did, but we just like being independent. You know, we have a, a certain swagger. You know, we're almost, uh, if you look in the dictionary, the definition of independence you know, how we think of ourselves, our interest and our ability in taking risk, our never-say-die attitude, our win-the-day attitude, 
Uh, all of those things just made for a better independent firm than it made for somebody who fit perfectly into a holding company. It's interesting. As a footnote, uh, Michael, uh, you and I sold our respective companies the same month of the same year. My firm was. Yeah, I remember. I remember when you sold them. Yeah. 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 And I yeah, sold I remember, my yeah. firm October two, 1999 to Publicis. <laughs> exactly the same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so obviously, uh, since you became independent again, you have made uh, your own acquisitions. Um, and, you know, you and I obviously continue to have conversations, given what I do and given what your interests yep. are. Um so how did your own experience in, in, in selling your firm and, and having been an acquisition yourself, uh, how did that experience uh, uh, be of, of help to you in uh, negotiating and dealing with subsequent acquisitions that you yourself made? What was, what was the role that you think that uh, that experience played in helping you understand the mindset of agency principles and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, kind of their considerations going forward with an acquisition? Well, I think it's been incredibly beneficial, and it's, it has made us um, a stronger acquirer. People want to sell to us. Once I can get um, the seller's confidence, I actually help them negotiate against myself. The you know I've seen both sides. I know what you go through. You know I let them know. You know I'm I'm not a heavy negotiator. I want a fair deal for both sides because we're looking to build a long-term relationship. It does me no good if they leave three after their earnout. You know, I want them to stay. I want them to help us grow and to get bigger and be part of our future. So I can have a very honest and open conversation about my experiences and even help them if they will let me on their side of the table. Uh, at the same time, you know, I can't tell you how many firms I've met with where after my initial meeting or my initial breakfast, I turn to the principal and say, don't sell your company. You don't want to sell it. I don't even know why you're selling it. So I've talked as many firms out of selling as I've talked into selling because after all these years, both my own sale, my own buyback, as well as companies I've bought and companies I've met with, I can tell in the first meeting whether this person really is ready for for a sale. Now, if they really want to sell it after my advice, I'm happy to, you know, take a quick look at it. But I want people to sell for all the right reasons. And I end up being not just a seller, but, you know, a, a consultant to them along the way, um, because you know, I'm a big pay it forward kind of person. So people help me. So it's my turn to help people. But it has made us a much better buyer and a much more attractive um, buyer to most sellers. So, Michael, tell us about MWW today. You know, uh, um, you've obviously had a tremendous track record in terms of growth and prominence for both yourself and the firm. Where are you today in terms of, say, size, scope, types of clients you have, number of people, that kind of thing? Give us, give us an overview. As, as though you were making a presentation to somebody who didn't know your company, what it is today. Well, I mean, you start with, I think, Art, that size-wise, we have approximately 165, 170 people 
across eight offices, um, you know, seven in the United States and uh, an office in London. Uh, we are headquartered in uh, Manhattan on 31st and Broadway. Um, and, you know, we do a lot of things. Our business can be broken down into three or four core um, practice areas, you know, uh, consumer lifestyle, corporate reputation, uh, issues management, public affairs. And within that, um, you know, we really believe that uh, what we are is a content and channel delivery business. Uh, take a look at what we're delivering today. Uh, media relations being the most important form of content we deliver, but we deliver content across the board, and then we help make sure that we deliver it through the right channels, both earned, owned, and paid. We represent, you know, we have deep practices in uh, health and wellness, sports and entertainment, food and beverage, uh, outdoor, uh, financial services, uh, and many others. We, you know, we have an extremely strong, uh, again, rep corporate reputation practice that includes we're one of the largest crisis firms in the country, uh, internal communications, and then our consumer lifestyle brand, you know, we represent some of the biggest companies in the world, uh, Nikon and Whole Foods um, and Subaru and so many others. Uh, we, we believe very much in a philosophy or really more than a philosophy, a way to program uh, is up against the consumer. We believe that the walls of corporate and consumer and public affairs and crisis they don't really exist anymore. Uh, your your stakeholder is not just one thing. Um, and your stakeholders today, your buyers, whether you're B2B or consumer, are buying as much on your corporate reputation as they are on your uh, product or services, on your feature sets. People buy don't really buy feature sets as much as they buy reputation today. So we've combined all of our practices into one overall practice called Corpsumer. While we still have uh, corporate and consumer and public affairs as separate uh, practice groups, uh, because many people still want to buy that way, we view every client assignment as a Corpsumer client. Uh, our digital practice is second to none, uh, creative services and content, um, and the vast majority of our clients are really integrated public relations. Uh, we, we lead with media relations, but have a strong uh, digital, uh, social, and content practice along with it. So we represent some of the largest companies in the world. We represent many exciting entrepreneurial companies, deep in technology, deep in healthcare, deep in consumer products. So how has the uh, COVID-19 uh, affected your business this year? Obviously, it's affected many public relations agencies in a, in a variety of ways, depending upon the niche you're in and, and so on. Uh, what kind of effect uh, has it had on your business? Uh, you know, I mean, I think we're very similar to many of the businesses that, you know, we had a very strong January and February, even early March, and then um, COVID strikes and, you know, and the last time around it struck fast and people weren't really prepared for it. Uh, you know, we had a, a dip in business in um, second half of March, 
and a little bit April. Um, what happened was, it's, I think, similar to many firms where our consumer business got not bad at all, but lumpy. And our corporate, particularly the crisis side, um, took off. Uh, one of the things about our business that I've always worked hard to be is that we, uh, we have, we're multidisciplined, so we can be successful in any phase of the economy. So while our consumer business plateaued for a while, uh, our corporate reputation, crisis, uh, issues management business, healthcare business, technology business had some of its best quarters ever. Uh, business is back today to a fairly normal split um, between crisis, consumer, reputation, uh, issues management, public affairs. Um, but we, you know, we had our dip. Uh, the good thing about running the business is, you know, we all forget the lessons that we promise never to forget. So I've been through four pretty major events in the economy. And the lessons are always the same afterwards. And things that you could not live without in January, today they seem frivolous. Now, so all of us, I believe, are running our businesses better. We're putting our money and efforts into where it really has an impact on our people, really has an impact on our clients, and not all those things that don't really matter to either. So we are, you know, we became a tighter knit bunch. Uh, we spent, you know, a vast majority, a big chunk of our time on making sure our employees were safe and they were healthy. We continue to make that our, our top priority, making sure that we are there 24-7 for our clients as their businesses change and their businesses morph um, to handle the COVID world and the COVID economy. And then given the vaccine, um, there's a high anticipation by sometime this summer, most a, a great deal of the population will have been vaccinated. So people, you know, the summer is not that far away in marketing terms. So, you know, people are beginning to look at what the post-COVID economy is going to look like, you know, the post-Trump uh, and then now the Biden economy is going to look like. Um, so there is a, a, a tremendous amount of opportunity right now in our business, both in helping people to navigate through this tail end of COVID, uh, again, which is likely to be the worst uh, that we've been through so far, and how that's going to impact, uh, you know, our employees, our clients, and obviously um, communities at large. Uh, at the same time, how people are marketing, what they're marketing about, what their core messages are. You know, the era of the silent CEO is ever is over. People are going to remember what you did during COVID. Corporate reputation is all. So how do we continue to help clients do the right things, grow and build their businesses, grow and build their brands, at the same, same time become get ready for the post-COVID environment? I'm going to switch subjects for a moment now, uh, Michael, if you don't mind, because sure. I know yeah. of your deep interest in uh, democratic uh, uh, politics. Uh, you've worked closely, as I indicated in the introduction. You've worked closely with uh, former President uh, Barack Obama, with Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden. Um, I know that you uh, initially were in politics at the outset of your career, which I, I think I didn't know that before, uh, which you shared with us a few moments ago. Um, what what 
what uh, motivated you to obviously give a lot of your time to democratic politics and particularly with these uh, high-level, um, always in the limelight uh, candidates uh, and obviously successful candidates? What can you tell us about working with prominent political candidates and particularly working with these people? Well, first off, they haven't all been successful, but I wish they were. Um, the I've, been, I've worked in some capacity with every president since Jimmy Carter, Democratic president since Jimmy Carter, and most of the candidates, even if they didn't become president. But that would be the same with uh the Democratic side with U.S. senators, governors, many Congress people. Um, you know, I've always I, I've always grown up believing that public service was why we're on Earth, that we all had an obligation. Uh, I grew up in a during the Vietnam War in Watergate. I grew up in a very progressive household. You know, things like. The war were discussed at our dinner table every night. Um, and, you know, I even led my first peace march in fourth grade and got obviously suspended. Um, <laughs> you know, but, you know, so it has always been part of who I am and what I grew up. So, you know, community service and public service, I've never known anything but that. And I've always believed that, um that doing that is the most noble and important career one can have. With that said, you know, there's also a, you know, a win and lose aspect of it. You know, you have to be incredibly smart today. You have to understand the use of technology. You have to know how to persuade and motivate people to take an action. I mean, it is the ultimate winning and losing. It is the ultimate strategy. You know, there is no shade of gray. You either win or you lose. And there's something incredibly satisfying about, you know, kind of hanging by your fingernails. There's, you have to be good every day. You have, more importantly, you have to be great every day. Good doesn't make it. Only great makes it. And these really are, as we can see on COVID and war and, and you know, social justice and economic uh, equality. These are truly life and death um, events. So it has always just been part of who I am. So, you know, starting it, uh, I mean, I volunteered on campaigns when I was in my, you know, in high school. And I even did some work when I was in grammar school, local local levels. I, uh, you know, I went to Washington to get involved in politics. I quickly became, a, you know, an assistant to the governor. And, you know, part of it is just working harder and working smarter. If you're willing to work 80 hours a week for very low pay and then go to school at night and you can do it too. But you have to understand, you know, these are intense, um, bet the farm, uh, all encompassing careers and opportunities. And it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done. You know, working on a presidential campaign or working on a, a Senate campaign or a governor's campaign, there's nothing in life that will ever match that. Both the intensity uh, that how do you challenge yourself to come to work and be great every day? Um, and knowing that you're going to be working seven days a week, 18 hour, 20 hour days for six months without a day off, including Christmas and New Year's. So uh, it's just something that was in my blood, something that I worked very hard to do. And as 
my career became more successful, as I became more financially successful, I truly believe that it was it was both my passion and my obligation to put those resources back into making this a better country. So almost by accident, I became a fundraiser. I was oddly good at it. And I've been able to have a hopefully an important impact on uh, both candidates, elections, and public policy in this country. So I work just as hard on public policy issues as I do on candidate issues. They'll just don't get as many, you know, that's not, you know, that's not quite as prestigious. It doesn't get written about as much, but you know, my life is very much dedicated to making the world a better place for people that I will probably never meet. Do you plan to play any role in the Biden administration? Uh, you know, I haven't made it a full decision yet, but no, I don't. I don't think so. You know, I don't really have any desire to move to Washington, even though I lived there for ten years and think it's a fantastic city. Um, so I don't see myself taking a full-time job, um, but I do. Uh, but I hope to be able to play some important roles uh, on the political side, as well as potentially some other positions that wouldn't be full-time that will allow me to continue to uh, run my agency and continue to do all the other philanthropic and political work I do. So the answer is no full-time job, but I do plan to be very much involved. In other words, if the phone rings, you'll answer it. (laughs) You know, I answer every phone, you know, it's a uh, phone calls are always worthwhile, but I don't see any scenario where I would go take a full-time job. Michael, I've got a few more questions for you. I appreciate your time. I know how busy you are. Uh, sure. I want to get a sense from you, given what, what's been going on in, uh, uh, in our country in the year 2020 with the coronavirus and uh, with uh, uh, the, uh, pre- the presidential campaigns and what have you, um, what's, what's, your, what's your view of where our country is today? Uh, and and what, what, do you, what is your perspective, if you care to share it with us, on the present uh, presidential, I won't call it an impasse because uh, it will come to a conclusion, uh, but uh, whatever views you'd like to share about, you know, what, what your contributions to the campaign tell you where the country is today. Well, clearly, um, as all of your listeners know, this is an extremely divided country. Over 70 million people b- believe that Donald Trump deserve four more years. Uh, I mean, which were materially less people than wanted Joe Biden to become president, but still, a lot, you know, many, many people. And, you know, we have some deep divides and, you know, and this is going to be an important and challenging time for the PR industry, how to help people continue to lead with purpose without having problems with politics. So how do you help people thread this needle between two very different countries? You know, the biggest issue, and, uh, you know, this has clearly been coming for a long time, um, is the information gap that, you know, we all live in information ghettos. We live in information boxes uh, and they're getting more polarizing all the time. So how do we reform Facebook? How do we um, get 
uh, more honest dialogue happening from, you know, uh, the right and other parts of our political segment. So we are a divided country. At the same time, I'm optimistic. I'm very optimistic, actually, and I always have been. At the end of the day, you know, the right thing will prevail, uh, even if you go through hiccups. You know, it feels like to many that that this is the first time this has happened. Well, you know, go watch any historical document on Richard Nixon. Now, you can decide whether Donald Trump or Richard Nixon was better or worse. That's up to you. Um, but, you know, so many of the things we're going to right now are exactly they're almost parallel to what happened during the Nixon period and Vietnam and Watergate. Um, you know, it's remarkable. I mean, spend any time looking at the Civil War. That was much worse than today. Now, the difference is the mass communications, which enables foreign actors and right wing zealots and QAnon and other people to uh, put all this false information in people's heads and then people believe it. And, and very much when you really look at the techniques and you look at the followers very much almost in a cult-like manner. With that said, you know, Donald Trump, you know, I, I can't tell you how long that Donald Trump will continue to contest the election, but I can tell you that he won't be there come January 20th, that it is my sincere hope that he, you know, will leave quietly, that he will, uh, he would concede, even though I don't expect that to happen, but I hope I'm proven wrong. Um, but come January 20th at, uh, at noon, Joe Biden will be president. And um, and if Donald Trump decides to stay in the Oval Office, he will be escorted out. But I don't imagine that will happen. I would imagine that he will very, you know, it, he, Donald Trump I think it, I think I believe has a great desire to continue to play a prominent role in the Republican Party, potentially even run for president again. So he can only take this so far. Michael, I have I have just one final question for you, and that is, where do you see Michael Kempner in the years ahead? Well, you know, sort of where I am now. I mean, but only older and hopefully wiser. The I like what I do. I like my business and the PR. I like, I love my people. I love my clients. Um, you know, it gives me the opportunity to do meaningful and important things in my business. You know, I really love clients and I always have that, you know, are complex and consequential and I can keep doing work that matters at the same time. I, being in the position I am, I have the opportunity to play an important role uh, in the future of our country, play an important role in critical issues like homelessness and uh, food insecurity and uh, international uh, human rights. Um, so, you know, I have a very full life. I have a fantastic family, fantastic wife. So, you know, I kind of, I'm pretty happy. So, so I would say that uh, I don't see any major changes in my life coming up except uh, doing more, uh, continue to do important things, and uh, just hopefully be a little wiser about it. Well, 
You have shown us your wisdom truly today, Michael Kempner. Michael Kempner has been our guest. He is CEO of MWWPR. And, Michael, on behalf of our listeners, I thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your views with us. Thanks so much, Art. And, again, everybody stay happy and uh, safe and have a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Michael. And thank you all for tuning in to another of the Stevens Group PR Masters podcast series. Until next time, I'm Art Stevens, wishing you the very, very best.